right, we're back. Thanks for tuning in. You are listening to the Drew Marshall Show. We're streaming live at drewmarshall.ca. Uh, we have five interns that are working with us on the show, and none of them are in the studio right now. I think I think the ladies all went pee-pee and then had lunch, and the boys are out there working, I hope, and it's just you and I, so we can talk smack about all nice. of them now. Millennials. Seriously, don't get me started on millennials. Oh, they're not so bad. That's because you work with them every stinking yeah, day. Yeah, so I know what they're like all, and I don't have to like no one. I still work with you. Because <laughs> you're a number four, and I'm a number four, and we get along. Oh, yeah, How's that for a segue? Um, hey, kids, it's time for Chris Hertz on the uh, Drew Marshall Show. He's the author of The Sacred Enneagram, Finding Your Unique Path to Spiritual Growth. Sounds like a woohoo title until you get into woo-hoo. the guts of things. For all the ways we live unawakened lives, the Enneagram is here to help. The Sacred Enneagram is a trustworthy, richly insightful guide to finding yourself in the Enneagram's nine type profiles and applying this practical wisdom for a life transformed. Far more than a personality test, uh, like, you know, Briggs Meyer, Meyer Briggs. Or True Colors is another famous one. Isn't it like Parachute or something? True Colors. No, 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 no. There is a song, but there is there is a personality when it's four colors. Author Chris Hertz writes: the Enneagram is a sacred map to the soul. I'd actually kind of agree with that. As woo woo as that sounds, woo woo is that Oprah? Is that what that reference is for? No, it's just like woo woo. Just like you know, woo woo. Ethereal nonsense is another. Oh, okay, all right, there you go. How's that? Anyway, instead of reading this through, let's bring Chris on because he's a lot smarter than I am. Chris Hertz, how you doing, man? Great, man. How you doing? What do you think of my intro, eh? Did you like it? Well, you're Drew, you're always so sweet, and I uh, appreciate the woo-woo. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta love the woo. Anytime I can woo-hoo you. Chris, first of all, what Enneagram type are you? Oh, Drew, love how you uh, try to out folks. Um, I'm dominant in type 8. Dominant in type 8. And for those who are listening who don't know what the heck we're talking about, what is a type 8? What's the brand? Well, the Enneagram sort of shows us the nine archetypes for human character structure. And um, and I like to use the numbers instead of the sort of names, because I think the names are sort of they're, they're reductionisms down to social functions or roles. But if you're going to sort of start somewhere, and if you start with your type, for me, starting with type eight is looking at these fundamental needs, right? So the eighth fundamental need is, is the need to be against the eighth basic fears of, of being destroyed, the eighth basic desires of feeling alive. And, and when you start to add these components together, what you start to get is, is really sort of a, a snapshot of essence. So they sometimes call the eight the, the challenger. Sometimes um, I, I call the eight the contrarian. Eights are folks that um, um, have, have felt a, a sense of, of being controlled in their childhood by the nurturing caregiver. And in that sense of control, they, they, they resist it. They push back against it. And that pushing back becomes a, a protective stance that they take in the world. And, and so um, they're, they're known to be a little cantankerous. They're known to be a little uh, fussy and grumpy about stuff. And, and when they do pick fights, they're doing that to really build trust. They're doing that to really sort of see who's going to stay in the game with them. Yeah, yeah. Um, What's the, the name of an aide? An aide is called a what? So the, the Riso Hudson folks at the Enneagram Institute um, have called the eight the challenger. Challenger. Um, organization, the Enneagram and the narrative tradition would call the eight the boss. The boss? Yeah. So that's why I, I don't like these these handles in particular because, like I said, they're, 
they're more descriptions of social roles or functions yeah. than, than getting at the essence, right? right the numbers right. Are, are a lot more unjudging or neutral, let's say. Sure, but it doesn't help a radio listener to know what the heck we're talking about. So, Right. Okay, so as a challenger or a boss or an eight, how did that shape the way you wrote your Enneagram book? Because Ian Cron wrote an Enneagram book, and he's a four, and that would have shaped how he wrote his book. Right, yeah. So, you know, if, 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 if somebody's listening to this and, and they're new to the Enneagram, fundamentally my sense of the Enneagram is, is it's a it is a sacred map of your soul. It is um, a teaching that exposes this this reality that our personality is our ego set of coping addictions that we wrapped up around a childhood wound so that we don't have to tell ourselves the truth about who we really are. And and these untruths, these malformations of of, of the sense of of our identity are, are sort of exposed in nine different ways. Right. So if as an A, I am going to bring anything forward, certainly that is going to be rooted and tethered to sort of the, the essential nature of my type here. And, and actually, Drew, like, I, I did really lead with a lot of A energy in my book, picking a lot of fights with some of the things that I think have been um, just assumed to be untinkerable within the sort of modern Enneagram tradition. And so... um you know, one of the things about the Enneagram is it, it tells you that each of these types has a passion, for example. Mm-hmm. And, and the Jesuits, I mean, borrowing this language from, from Oscar Chazo, the, the Bolivian man who, who, who brought a lot of this forward, but the Jesuits have, in the 70s and 80s, ascribed sin language to these passions. And so if you Google your Enneagram type and you start to look at what your passion is, it, it's going to be one of the said seven deadly sins or nine capital sins and in my book, I actually say your passion isn't a sin. In fact, your passion is how your ego thirsts to reconnect with the, the disconnect from your essence. It's like a little, little tiny flashlight and a keychain, and you're trying to find your way out of a forest. And sure, it is entirely um, the wrong tool. It is entirely incapable of helping you get to where you need to go, but it's your first appeal. Yeah. When you become addicted to it, when you overuse it, and you actually think it's the sort of end all that it becomes becomes problematic, right? Right. right. So there's a bunch of a bunch of fights I I pick on my book about childhood wounds. I actually don't think the Enneagram's childhood wounds are real wounds, but it's confirmation bias of type. Um, um, and there's a few other things. So you know, as Nate had fun with it. <laughs> Do you think that um, the Enneagram is a misunderstood reality within the Jesus scene? In other words, they see the symbol for the Enneagram and they think paganism or something weird? Well, you know, the first time I saw it, it looked like uh, two pentagrams having sex. So I, I think it can actually um, push religious folks away or, 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 or be sort of a, a totem that would cause some concern. But, um, you know, I think what the Enneagram exposes is, is, is observable patterns that are, that are repeated in all great wisdom traditions, all faith traditions. Um, you know, if this, this number nine doesn't seem to be sort of one of the your favorite numbers in the Bible, well, you, you actually are sort of missing something that's, that's, that's sort of, um, it's just written into the text. Like if, if you have to make the implicit explicit, there were nine Beatitudes. There's nine fruits of the Spirit. I mean, you can just keep running around circle and, and seeing this show up almost almost everywhere you look right right do you think i don't even know how to word this chris but there seems to be an explosion uh in the last 20 years of well probably 30 years of self-help stuff 
and diving into who I am and who am I really and my childhood wounds and my, you know, how do I... And so what I'm trying to get to is um, we seem like a bunch of sucky wimps running around wondering what happened to us that was younger that made us who we are and then we seem to be professional blame shifters and mm-hmm. um i don't know there seems to be a growth in this industry and and so what do you say to the person who, who says to you and you know this person chris the person who says to you dude the bible's enough well the, you know the <laughs> yeah that's you're, we're really going to do this okay um, <laughs> Look, whatever your your sacred text is, um, and and for for Muslim folks, I imagine who listen, um, who are rooted in a historic Christian faith tradition, um, I, I think you can 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 point to your scriptures as as one of the ways that you try to discern, um, or you try to filter through what you need to 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 be able to to point out as good, true, or beautiful. But um, we sort of know that like not everything that's true lands on a page in a, in a holy book. Um, and, and so I think, um, you know, if you're, you're appealing to the scripture as your sort of starting point for, is this street legal? Is this safe? I, I think what you learn in the scriptures is, is that God gives each of us um, the ability to practice discernment um, because we're, we're not disconnected from, from that gift. And actually, growing in discernment is being able to actually incorporate and include other things into your own spiritual formation that you can't find um, written in a word on a page in a book. So, you know, in the evolution of our human consciousness, yes, things like this are becoming a lot more um, practical, helpful in the evolution of our human consciousness. If we can actually avoid the sort of blame game, which is always toxic, and, and really look at um, some of these these compassionate this this sketch of compassionate possibilities of of who we can become if we're aware of it, then in fact I I would say the enneagram could probably be one of the the greatest supports to your own um, to your own spiritual journey. Okay, uh, we are chatting with Chris Hertz. Chris, is it Hewerts? Because it's spelled Hewerts. Hewerts. Hewerts is right. Yeah, Chris Hewerts. That might have been the first conversation I had with you in the backyard of that nice family that we we hung out with one time when you were here, and that's when we realized that we would be brothers from other mothers for, you know, for the rest of our lives. Uh, he is the author of the Sacred Enneagram: Finding Your Unique Path to Spiritual Growth. How do you? It's like when I came back from the Camino, I heard people say, "The Camino finds you." You're not going to come back and tell everyone about the Camino and hope they go in the Camino and sell the Camino and get people to go in the Camino. The Camino finds them. But when it comes to the Enneagram, there's a bit of talking into people. You know, you got to talk people into it a little bit, I think. The Enneagram finds them. I don't know if I believe all that stuff. So how do you concisely describe the Enneagram to a pessimistic jerk? Well, like I, like I said, I, I think what the Enneagram does is it exposes these, these repeatable patterns in human character structure. And so, you know, it's, it's, you can't scientifically probably prove something like this. And, and so for that kind of skeptic, like, there'll never be, like, the um, argument that will be convincing enough but if you can discern or determine your type, and if you could actually start to, to, to really delve into some of the thick descriptions around what your type says about your own patterns mm-hmm. of behavior, 
um, the own things that that the, the things that sort of get behind your impulses, your compulsions, um, your your motivations for how you project your own ego mythology into the world, and then how you build scaffolding around that so that you can sort of prove it to yourself. <laughs> you it, got, it, dude, it becomes, stop! You got to say that again. The ego mythology and scaffolding stuff was gold. <laughs> Drop that again. Well, it's it's like this. Like I, I, we all sort of project our own sense of ego mythology because there's a a version of ourselves that we want to be or we want to be seen as if it's if it's true or not and what we we do is we let um some of the fragments of of, of the of the whole sum of our collective identity lay claim to the whole of one of these little little bits and we know that that little bit of who we are isn't us and so then we do have to build sort of a a, a false scaffolding around that to support this this mythology to support this this illusion and and that's really where I think the Enneagram does prove itself is because it exposes that to us if we're if we're honest, if we're going to tell ourselves the truth. Okay, so um, l- let's take this out of the air and bring it back into the body. Personalize this thing. And let me throw something out, which I think might be true of me. And you help me see if I'm on the right page here or not. So what I have discovered, and it took me 50 years to figure this out, what I have discovered is that I like to set up my life in such a way as that it doesn't really matter what the other people's roles are in my play on the stage as long as I get to play the victim. Mm. So what that looks like or could look like in an unhealthy state is um, somebody might say uh, something bad about me. Or, you know, when I started this radio show 15 years ago, you know, a lot of the Jesus people would say, oh, he's, he's just a button pusher. He just does it for reaction. It's just, you know... It's just his way of rattling the chains, and that's just for ratings or whatever and that kind of thing. And that drove me mental because Mm -hmm. as an Enneagram 4, what's most important to me as a 4 is authenticity. Mm -hmm. Authenticity is so much for me. It's everything for me. But then what I would do is I would get into this kind of complaining about... Oh, somebody doesn't, you know, they think I'm a loser or they they don't like me or they, or when I'm telling my story about maybe a broken or fractured relationship, we all do this as people, but fours are really Mm. good at it. I share in such a way as to go, well, I'm the victim here. I'm the victim. Mm. And I'm I'm just exhausted Mm. of playing those games. I can't do that anymore. Well, I I tend to keep doing that. But okay. So is that, is the Enneagram going to help me see what I just said? Well, sure. I mean, I mean, you're, you're, you're telling, you're telling yourself the sort of truth of your own ache, right? So, so I, I, I come from like the sort of school of thought that believes that Enneagram is nature, not nurture, that you're born um, somewhere on that circle. And the, and the point closest to that circle becomes your, your, your sort of dominant type. So if you're dominant type four, then you were born to, to, to bring beauty forward in the world. You were born to sort of be a, a, a balancing force of, of, of presence and peace. And so when you were disconnected from that, probably between ages two, three, four, five, right? And this is when we learn to pretend, when we learn to lie, when we start to understand our own sense of differentiation, um, you probably realize that the world wasn't beautiful, that everything wasn't and isn't always true and good. And that even in the sort of need for you to offer the sense of, uh, of balance of equanimity that that was always going to be a little bit off kilter. So what did you do? You, you began to, to look for ways to prove that to yourself so that you could make sense of, of what was hurting inside you. Even as a little kid, we didn't have the psycho spiritual 
uh, framework or language to, to accurate, accurately narrate our, our childhood. So what you did was you probably put that on both your protective and or um, nurturing caregivers, if you had to, and blame them by saying, I, I don't belong to you because if I did, you would make this okay. You would help me know that I am beautiful and that I bring beauty forward, that, that all the emotional turmoil, all the pain that I feel, all these things that I ache um, don't have to define me, right? Mm. So as a little kid, this, this already starts to, to take hold of you. And then as, as you grow, if you're dominant type four, all you want to do is, is to see beauty and goodness. What you want to do is see authenticity and significance in everything. And so when you don't, and especially when you don't and can't see it in yourself, then you probably do push buttons and you probably do push outward. And you probably do see what's significant in everyone else but yourself as a way of trying to be seen as, as sort of fighting these proxy battles outside as like holding up the mirror the wrong way and um, putting it on someone else. And as we continue not to, to deal with this, well, it, it becomes addictive. It becomes um, compulsive. And, um, and so, you know, for, for somebody who's dominant type four, the compulsive addiction of that then becomes this sort of longing for what they think everybody else has that they don't. And when, that bums you out. If you think somebody else does have what you don't and you want that, then you probably will go after them and yeah. you probably will push their buttons and you probably will be a little bit of a provocateur. <laughs> and you're probably doing this subconsciously to help them understand the beauty of what it is that they have. Maybe something that they don't appreciate that you wish you could appreciate. And so maybe that frustration, that pain, that anger, um, drives you and it drives you towards, just like you said, um, this, this, um, responsibility of, of being a truth teller. Um, but man, it, it it's a circle, right? And if you yeah. can't observe it, if we can't self-observe, we can't self-correct, right? Yeah. On the line with Chris Hertz, he is a uh, author of Sacred Enneagram, the Sacred Enneagram, Finding Your Unique Path to Spiritual Growth. His website is Chris, C-H-R-I-S, and then Hertz. Hewitts is his last name, which is so fun to say, H-E-W-E-R-T-Z.com. Chris, I mean, the title of the book begs the question, what's so sacred about the Enneagram? And you've touched on it a little bit, but I want to frame this question a little tighter for you because I know you're very familiar with the Jesus scene. Is it sacred because it has something to do with God? Well, so this is going to probably be lost on a lot of readers, but what I was trying to do in my book was actually advance the conversation beyond sort of the weaponizing of the Enneagram as a, a dinner party trick where you can sort of look around the table and size people up, pull their types out, tell them things about their childhood or themselves that they may have always known, but didn't have the sort of framework to wrap around. Right. And when you do that, it's, it can be fun. Of course, that's, that's not sort of a kind application of, of what you learn from this. But what I was trying to do in the book was move the conversation forward and say, once you learn your type, what do you do with it? How do you use what you learn about yourself for your own spiritual growth and spiritual formation? And so the sacred Enneagram is specifically um, a, a sort of a, an Enneagram that I'm bringing forward that basically says, if you can locate your, your intelligence center in your instincts and your feelings or your, your thoughts, if you can understand how you related to your caregivers or, or parents as child based on attachment, rejection, or frustration, then I offer solitude, sounds, and stillness as prayer postures, consent, engagement, and rest as mindfulness intentions. 
And when you wrap them around the Enneagram, it actually comes out with nine unique combinations, which I actually try to prove in the book that says for your type, if you're dominant in type four, then you need to rest in solitude. And that's how you nurture your spirituality. Fours are, are frustrated idealists. They're frustrated about what's wrong in the world. They're idealists wow. about what is beautiful and authentic, authentic in the world. And that frustration of their idealism causes them such tremendous pain. And what they do is, like I said, they, they hold this mirror out backward facing, trying to be seen in it by seeing what's beautiful in everyone else. And if you're dominant type four, the truth is, is you will only know that you are beautiful by going inward, not having somebody else tell you that. So resting in solitude is the sort of sacred Enneagram path home for somebody dominant in type four. And that's what I mean by the sacred Enneagram. It's, it's nine unique paths to, to coming back home, nine unique paths of, of finding your way to God. And that's what one of my, my teachers, Russ Hudson, says. The Enneagram is less about nine types of people, nor about nine paths to God. Really well said. And Russ, of course, was a guest on our show a couple of weeks ago. Was it last week? It was or last week. It was last week. Wow, You're where did that Enneagram go? You're an Enneagram thing right now. <laughs> I'm on an Enneagram roll. Uh, we're going to have Gail uh, come back and join us. Gail Scott, she was uh, with us last year once a month for seven months, and she's mm. going to come back in a couple of weeks as well. I just really find this stuff fascinating, and I think I've allowed myself to find it fascinating for two reasons. One, I've hit a point in my life where I'm actually interested in figuring out why I'm a jerk. Uh <laughs> And then the other, You're not a jerk. Well, and then the other part of it is, I've allowed myself to dig into the enneagram stuff because I've sussed out whether it's uh, woohoo nonsense, and it's not. It is not mm-hmm. woohoo nonsense, and I'll challenge anybody, anytime, anywhere, if they think it is, anytime. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that was my little rant. Um, okay, Chris, mm. just the fact that Russ Hudson has said great things about your book is enough for me to sign off on your book because he is, you know, he's one of the gurus in this whole, oh, I can't use the word guru, sorry. Sure you can. It's a sacred word. (laughs) So again, the the book is called Sacred Enneagram, Finding Your Unique Path to Spiritual Growth, and you can find it on Amazon or wherever else. Uh, Chris Hewartz, H-E-U-E-R-T-Z, or Z in Canada, dot com. Uh, Chris, before we say goodbye to you because we're running out of time here, I want to know, what was your biggest takeaway from hanging out with Mother Teresa? Oh, man. Um, So I was, you know, when I graduated from university, I moved to India and and, and lived in the South there for a few years working with with kids with AIDS, uh, kids who had been orphaned because of the disease. But I'd I'd go up to Calcutta four or five or six times a year and ended up probably sitting with mother uh, a dozen or 15 times the last few years of her life. I would say this, um, you know, the the things that we learn from our, our greatest mentors or greatest teachers um, aren't the things that we hear them say, but it's watching actually how they live. Hmm. And so all the things that mother told us, um, all the things that she had shared with me, of course, profound, amazing. But, but the truth was, is, is watching her um, handle every single person with such sincere intent and compassion. Um, watching her, right, along with her, her sisters, the, the missionaries of charity, stop five times a day, um, for, for mass, for adoration, um, for, for silence. Um, that, that was, that was pretty, pretty remarkable. And I used to think like, you know, when I was a kid, like she had to stop five times a day to pray because that's how much prayer was needed to sort of make her work fruitful. But, you know, as we watched her, I think the thing that, that maybe stood out the most was 
her work was the fruit of her prayer and her life was built around those sacred pauses and those rhythms. And, and we don't see that anymore. You know, I don't see somebody, you know, my wife now, for example, will, will give herself to, to two or three hours of contemplative um, prayer sit, centering prayer sits a day. Maybe she's the closest person to mother that I've sort of seen make that commitment. But man, that was, that was remarkable. So you married mother Teresa. <laughs> it feels like it. Sometimes it feels like it. Except your mother Teresa is a little bit hotter. You know what I'm saying? Um, what, speaking of uh, awkward questions, what uh, what number would you give Mother Teresa? What Enneagram type? Right. So so I'd, I'd say this. Um, I, I think Mother Teresa is historically probably the most dis, misdiagnosed uh, type, too. Um, I'm certain, and I think a lot of other people would agree with this, that Mother was, was dominant in type 8. I mean... She was a ball buster, like get out of her way. Um, her initiating presence, her, her force of love in the world, of course, as an integrated eight, reaching out and, and borrowing some of those um, virtues and values of, of, of someone dominant in type two would maybe be why we would mistype her. But I'm, I'm certain, I'm, I'm almost certain she was, she was dominant in type eight. Chris, when are you back in Toronto, man? Uh, I don't know. It, it, it used to be about every eight or ten months, but it, it's been a minute. Yeah. So. I guess they just got tired of, of how spiritual you are, you know. Oh, yeah. Right. It can be exhausting <laughs> hanging around spiritual giants. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. <laughs> you are a cool cat. Chris Hewitz. He's the author of The Sacred Enneagram, Finding Your Path to Spiritual Growth. Chris, um, thank you. Yeah, actually, because... I get worried when when new people write books about something so sacred and old, and yet I think you know you've done your dues. You've, you're you're training your experience, your heart. You're in it, man. You you have earned the right to write what you wrote. Wow. Well, you're good, I, Drew. I, I, I don't know, man. I uh, I've been working with this thing for almost twenty years, and, Thank and you. honestly, like I feel like. Uh, I, I feel like I'm the kid in the room with um, great mentors, great sure. guides, great teachers. So it's something you have to internalize. It's something you have to do your inner work with. Yeah. Um, and it's um and it's severe, but it's gentle. So keep keep uh, introducing it to folks, man. Well, when I grow up, I want to be more like you. No way, no way. Thanks for your time, man. Good to talk to you, Chris. Always good connecting, Drew. Behave. <laughs> Okay, baby. Behave. All right. <laughs> See you, Chris. Bye-bye. Later. Bye-bye. Chris here. It's on the Drew Marshall Show.